Let's pray together. Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You are wonderful and glorious and gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You hold the universe together. When we behold who you are, we are compelled to say, what is man, that you are mindful of him? And all the more that you sent your son, that you've called us to yourself, that you've sent your son to die for us, that you might adopt us as your children, to bring us in, that he would be our portion and our cup, that we might be able to say we have no good apart from you, and that in your presence we know there is fullness of joy at your right hand, O God, there are pleasures forevermore. So I pray that as we open your word today, we would see the glories of your son, we would see as he calls his first disciples, we would see ourselves 2,000 years later as his 10 millionth disciple that he's called by name or however many there are, Lord, but we would see him look to us, we would see his loving heart, we would see his infinite glory and that we, like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, would leave the boat and leave our nets and follow him because he is the ultimate treasure. So I pray that you would do that by your spirit. That's a supernatural work that you have to do. That's not something that us men and women can muster up in our own hearts. That's a supernatural change that must take place by an infinitely powerful God. So we pray that you, the infinitely powerful God, would do that in our hearts today and that we would love you more and walk in the joy and the freedom of the gospel. I pray that in your son's glorious name. Amen. We're continuing to walk through the gospel of Matthew. We talked when we we started this gospel about how each gospel author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are painting a, a portrait of Jesus. They're not giving different accounts, but they're displaying a different portrait of the living God-man, Jesus Christ. And so we've been seeing Matthew's portrait over the past several weeks, and he's kind of divided up section by section. We've seen him showing us the infancy narrative, as it's often called, the genealogy of Jesus, his ancestry, if you will, his uh, infancy story where an angel comes to Joseph and tells him of the miraculous birth. We see wise men come to him and praise him as a toddler while the king that should be praising him rejects him and actually tries to kill him, King Herod. We've seen him flee, then flee, and their family return. We've seen the past few weeks the, the preparation for ministry. John the Baptist as the new Elijah preparing the way for the Lord preaching that we should repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we saw the king actually show up in his baptism, the heavens being torn open, the father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit of the living God descending on him like a dove, taking him out to be tempted, him overcoming temptation, him succeeding where Adam and Eve failed. And then last week, we actually saw the beginnings, the doors of the ministry fly open as we see Jesus going down to Capernaum, to the region of Galilee, where he will do the majority of his ministry. And the last verse we looked at is Jesus beginning to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so today, as we're in this new section of him starting his ministry, we're going to see an event that if it did not happen, if the event today did not take place, you and I would be somewhere else right now. We would be doing 
something else, and Jesus would be someone to admire 2,000 years ago, but it did happen. What we're going to look at today is him calling his first four disciples. We're going to see him call 12, and then 2,000 years later, he called you. You're in this room because he is a God who calls disciples to follow him. So we're going to zoom in on this today, look at these five verses. It's a pretty descriptive passage, you notice. Jesus walking along the shore, sees men, follow me, they do. Sees two more, follow me, they do. So what we're going to do, we're going to read over it, and then we're gonna, I, w- I want to shine a spotlight on, on four different elements. I want to draw out four different things uh, from this passage for us to just kind of hone in on and look at. So the four things are the disciples that Jesus calls, the nature of the calling, the response to the calling, and the one who is doing the calling. You guys are like, four, not three. I don't know what to do with myself. I'm going to tune out after three. I've changed it up just to keep you on your toes, okay? The disciples who he's going to call, who are the people that he's going to say, come, follow me, the nature of that calling, what does that calling look like? What does it mean to follow this guy yelling at us from the shore? The response to the calling, what options do we have when he calls? And then who is it that's actually calling us. So let's look at verse 18. I'll read through the whole passage, and then we will look at that first kind of spotlight, the disciples that he calls. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, They left their nets and followed him, verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's look at this first piece, the disciples that he's calling. Jesus is walking along the shore, and he sees two sets of brothers that will end up being kind of the, the, the four, at least the most well-known disciples, three of the four at least, Peter and Andrew, brothers, James and John, who are fishermen. They're right off the shore fishing. Galilee, right, right off the shore of Capernaum where Jesus is staying, is a, is a thriving fishing industry. And you would fish quite literally, you know, off the shore just a, uh, not too far of a distance. Remember, Peter at the end of the Gospel of John sees Jesus and he jumps out of the boat and swims and unless he's like the pre-Michael Phelps skills, that you got to be somewhat close, otherwise you'll be you know, somewhat tired. And he's, they're close enough where he can yell at them and he can hear them. So they're fishing right off the shore. Jesus sees them, calls to them, and they respond. They obey. They, they follow him. Notice, not just to be an audience. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to do some awesome stuff. You want to come watch. He's calling them as a rabbi to be his disciples, to be his students, to watch every uh, thing that he does and model their lives after him. Now, why is that significant? Remember, we've been looking at who this rabbi is, who this Jesus guy is over the past few weeks. He is the Lamb of God that has come, why? To take away the sins of the world. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of the living God that he is the king of, and he's going to overturn every worldly kingdom that has ever existed. He is on, quite simply, 
the mission of all missions. You don't step off of your eternal heavenly throne and become a man for a small little mission. He is on the mission of missions. Jesus, right here, what he's doing on earth is more important than Frodo taking the ring to Mordor. Hard to imagine. More important than Han and Luke, you know, going to destroy the Death Star, you know, however many times they do it, once, twice, three times. More important than Harry Potter killing the guy with no nose. Never seen the movie. I just assume that's what he's doing, right? Right. This is the mission of missions. He's here, quite simply, to change the course of eternity. So here's the question. Why in the world is he calling to join his team some random fishermen? Every movie that's ever existed where there's one guy who's like commissioned, go do this, awesome things. There's that scene where they play the fun music and he goes around and finds against a guy who's working out. He's like, you, come join my team, right? Samuel L. Jackson in The Avengers, whatever his name is, Captain Eyepatch. Uh, <laughs> Nick Fury, yes, thank you. Right, the end of every movie, if you stay after the credits, it's him saying, hey, Hulk, why don't you come get mad and turn green for a good cause? Join this team I'm putting together, right? You want the best of the best of the best. If this horrible enemy is going to come and you're, that's who you're going to go up against, you want the best on your team. What is Jesus doing going out into the streets, if you will? There's plenty of students who have the Old Testament memorized that would have been great candidates for him in the rabbinic schools, but he doesn't go to Harvard he doesn't go to Yale. He doesn't go to Oxford. He doesn't go to the best seminaries or, you know, fish through the best resumes. He goes to the streets. What in the world is he doing? Why is he calling these random fishermen? And the answer is twofold. Number one, to exalt his glory. We just finished studying 1 Corinthians. God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. God chooses the weak to shame the strong. Jesus, in calling these fishermen, these untrained, uneducated fishermen, is simply exalting his own glory in his power by choosing the small so that there's no other explanation when they turn the world upside down. When they go out and there's unbelievable life change and thousands are coming in to join this Christian church, there will be no other explanation then it must be due to something beyond these weak men. Their skill could have never produced this. There must be something supernatural behind them. Uh, it's no secret, because I've told you, if you've been listening, I have an idolatrous obsession with a uh, soccer player named Lionel Messi. Uh, it's, it's a bit much, but he's the best, okay? So you can't really blame me. He's the best, like, athlete, not just soccer player, like, every sport ever, he is better than everybody else, okay? He's that good. Now, there's another player uh, that exists in our world that's kind of played alongside him who also at least calls himself the best. His name's Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, he's more famous for taking pictures in his underwear, so he has a big following. Don't, don't look at his Instagram, Carl. Put your phone down. Uh, right, so they're, they're, they're on the same. They both score a lot of goals, and people misunderstand soccer, so I think Cristiano... Ronaldo's okay. But the question their whole careers has been, are they good or are they just on a good team? And no one knew because their team is good and they appear to be good. But now, over the past few years, they both left their good teams. And so now our eyes are opened. Ronaldo's team just won the championship, 
right? They're fine without him, they're good, and he's done terrible. No one even knows who he is anymore, right? So it's very obvious. He is like average, but his team is really, really good, and they were kind of carrying him. Messi left his team, and they have crumbled. They were doing horrible. And now, because of how bad they're doing without him, people are saying, man, he's even better than we thought because he was holding together this mess for years and years and years and years and years. So because he had trash around him, yet they're still winning and he's scoring 50 goals a year and stuff like that, people are saying, wow, look how great he is. People like me and people like you, because it's part of our membership covenant to love Messi. (laughs) Snuck it in there, okay? So you see that uh, idea here. Jesus has the same thing in mind. Look at Paul. So Paul, the greatest missionary of the Christian church, writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7, and he's talking about, we proclaim Jesus. We don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim the gospel. And this is how he describes it. We have this treasure. We have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. Why? So that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This gospel, this this Lord, this Jesus that we proclaim is this unthinkable treasure, and we have him. We proclaim him as a brittle jar of clay that's easily breakable. Why? So that we cannot possibly get any credit. The surpassing power may belong to God and not to us. You see that. So Jesus is going out and calling these weak, kind of outcasts, or someone that you would never take a second look at in order to exalt his own glory that people might say it certainly can't be by their skill, which is, if you read the book of Acts, exactly what they do say when Peter, this fisherman, stands up, preaches, and 3,000 people repent and come into the kingdom. As they're arrested and people are trying them, they say this, now when they saw the boldness, this boldness, the supernatural boldness of Peter and John, two of the fishermen we're looking at, They perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. It can't be from these uneducated, common men. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see this picture here, these jars of clay, but have a treasure inside so that the treasure is, is what is praised, not the jar. You see that in who Jesus is Calling, And not only that, not only is it to display his glory, but it actually puts to shame anyone who would trust in their own strength. Anyone who does say, it is the jar, it's me, I'm awesome, and that's why there's great success. It puts to shame those who would trust in their own strength. Think about the nature of the gospel we believed. We believe, presently. Uh, how, how is our victory won? The God of the universe dying a slave's death on a torture device. That is how our victory is won. The foolish to shame the strong. How does Christianity spread like wildfire in the early church? Through martyrdom and through mockery. The weak shaming the strong in the world's eyes. 1 Corinthians 1.26. We looked at this several years ago when we were studying this book. Hear this as a disciple of Jesus. This is Paul speaking. Now consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, boast in the treasure, not the jar. That's who Jesus calls, and that's why he calls them, that he might be what is praised. Notice, as we now have access to basically everything that happens in the world, every famous celebrity pastor that's fallen, had a horrible failure, and fallen very publicly over the last 10 years, almost all of them, it's because their skill outpaced their character. It was all the people that we said, whoa, they're a great preacher, and I want to listen to them, and they began to trust in themselves, and that is where the problems began. But our focus is never on the jar. It's always on the treasure inside the jar. Now, quick clarifier as we're talking about this. This, the fact that he calls uh, uneducated fishermen, does not mean that we should not study God. We shouldn't study theology or the things of God or know your Bibles. That's, that's used often. The disciples weren't educated, therefore we should not be educated. Two things of, of why that's dumb. Uh, number one, theology isn't like, you know, you're thumbing through an academic textbook. You're, just stu- you're studying your God, which, by the way, is what you're going to be doing for all of eternity. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So you're going to be doing it forever. Go ahead and start now. That's just my advice to you, right? That's a good thing. It's why you exist, to study, to know, and to live in fellowship with him who loves you and knows you. Second thing, super important, we often miss this, the disciples are about to get the greatest seminary education that has ever existed, okay? I have two degrees from seminary. (laughs) Most people have one. Now, (laughs) ridiculous. I don't have an undergrad, so I've kind of cheated the system, Uh, but... You know who wasn't my professor every single day, 24-7 for three years? The son of the living God. You know who was Peter, Andrew, James, John's professor 24-7 for three years? Jesus. Okay? So, yes, they're uneducated formally. They did get the best education that has ever existed ever. So you should want to know the God that you live to know and that you will be drinking in for all of eternity. So, anyway, small, small rant. That's the first thing. He calls us... Weak, small in the world, so that he might be the one that is exalted, not our skill. Second thing he's doing is he's exalting his character. He's exalting his character. This is so easily missed. He's not calling the best resume what good news for you and me. He is calling out of the loving heart that he has. Don't miss that. Paul, again, writing to Timothy, his kind of main disciple, he's reflecting kind of towards the end of his life on his own conversion and why Jesus called him and why Jesus used him. And this is how he describes this. I love this. Paul, the most successful Christian of all time, the missionary of the church. We have a book of him traveling all over the known world, being beaten and singing in prison, right? If there's anyone we can look to as kind of the best example, right? He's better than Billy Graham. I know that's hard for us to swallow, right? Humanly speaking, look at how he describes himself in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. The saying is trustworthy. 
and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Not the best, not the best resume, to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And he's not just giving lip service there saying, we're all sinners and I'm really bad. He persecuted the church. It was his mission before he met Jesus to stomp out Christianity from existence. And yet Christ comes to him, knocks him off his horse and saves him. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's saying, when you look at me and the fact that I'm somehow a follower of his, all you should see is his beautiful, perfect character, his patience. Me, the greatest enemy of his church, he saved and sanctifies, and he's so patient with us. I'm falling over and over and over and over again. What does that display? His glory, yes, his power, yes, but his character, his perfect patience. What a loving Savior. What a, what a character he has who calls the lowly and is so patient with those whom he calls. We'll see. Every time Peter opens his mouth, Jesus is like, okay, it'd be better for you if you just zip it and just let me do the talking, okay? Right? It's, they're constantly putting their foot in their mouth. He's very patient with them, and he's patient with me, and he's patient with you. What a character that we have. What a character exists in our Savior who calls lowly, weak disciples like you and like me. So that's who he is calling, fishermen, not the best, not the, uh, the scholars. He's calling fishermen, the unseen, to exalt his glory and exalt his character. And then the next thing, shift the spotlight. He's called, now I want to look at the nature of the calling. What does this calling entail? Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So he doesn't just say, follow me and kind of watch what I do or walk behind me while I go fight with all these Pharisees or anything like that. He says, rather, follow me, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to redefine what you do. I'm going to redefine your purpose. You'll still fish but what you fish for, why you fish, all of that will be redefined by me. You're no longer going to fish for fish. You're going to fish for people. Literally, I will make you fishers of people, fisher for people in the Greek. So what is he, what is he getting at here? This is, as we've been looking at this kind of unfolding gospel of the kingdom that's being proclaimed, a huge revelation. Jesus is not just going to go do all this stuff with an audience watching him, right? He's going to actually call us into the kingdom to participate in his mission. When he calls you, he doesn't call you to sit on the bench. He calls you to actually participate in the mission of God. So what is his mission? To seek and save the lost. To go after those who are God's elect. He doesn't just call followers to sit there. He calls followers who will call followers he calls disciples who will also make disciples. Following him isn't just like, you know, liking a team. It's not just liking Messi or Barcelona or the Cowboys, right, where we buy the hats 
and the gear, and we go to the, you know, Jerry World and watch them lose and disappoint us for the 30th year in a row, right? That's not what following Jesus is like. Following Jesus, by his grace and by his power, you join his mission. And we will see when we finally get to the end of this book, I don't know, 2039 or whenever we get there. In Matthew 28, when we get there, we're going to see a direct connection from this passage to the last words that Jesus will give us in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came. This is after his death, after his glorious resurrection. He came to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, fish for people from all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go to the next book after the Gospels and Acts, and you will see this fisherman, Peter, stand up and cast a net and catch 3,000 on day one of the church. There's a direct connection between the nature of this call and our commission. The nature of your calling is that you are commissioned in the same mission of God that Jesus has come to establish, which it wasn't just true of them 2,000 years ago. It's still true of you today, okay? There's a misconception we often get uh, where what I'm doing right now is like professional, Christian. This is real ministry, and you kind of watch real ministry. That is exactly backwards, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, pastors, and the teachers. Why? To do everything for you, to do ministry while you come and watch and admire, something like that. Verse 12, to equip the saints, you, for the work of ministry. You're the one out there in your workplace fishing. You're the one in your neighborhoods fishing. You're the ones that God has sovereignly put in in to lives of people who aren't, don't know his son, who aren't Christians, to fish. What we're doing is to equip you for ministry. Don't get that backwards. We often get that backwards. The very nature of being called by him is joining him in calling others. So if you are not engaged in kingdom work, we have radically misunderstood the nature of the calling. See it here. Right after, follow me because I will make you fishers of men. And one of the things I don't want us to misunderstand, it would be a tragic thing to misunderstand, Jesus is not calling us because he needs us. As if there were something lacking in him, and I'm only one God, you know, I'm holding the universe together, but I need you guys to go do some talking for me, right? There's nothing lacking in him. He doesn't call us because he needs us. He calls us because he loves us. It is the highest honor in the universe to fight and serve and live for and die for the King of Kings. If you work today, if you work for a paycheck, and that's it, that's really, you know, you don't love your job, but it, you know, pays you money and you can feed your family, stuff like that. You may be diligent, you may be faithful, but you won't be passionate necessarily. But if you're fortunate enough to have a job where you know, you know, we make a product that people need that people must have, the, you know, we have a cause that is great, then you'll be passionate going to work. It's almost like you're not working at all because you just love so much what you're doing. There is nothing that could be greater. There's no greater need or no greater cause than proclaiming the glory of the infinitely beautiful and loving 
God, of saying to people who are on their way to destruction, turn back, not just away from destruction as if all you're doing is saving them from death or from hell, but turn back to the God of all joys, the God who will satisfy every human longing you've ever had. There is no greater need. There is no greater cause. And Jesus is inviting us into this. Now, I'll show you how this is true. How many of you, and that Top Gun 2 just came out, and I know this is true of at least 19 of you. How many of you, when you see a good movie or you see a good show, you must tell everyone? Why? Yeah, thank you. The honest one's here, right? You want them. You've enjoyed it. You want others to enjoy it as well. You want to share it. You even follow up. Have you seen it yet? And when they say no, you get angry. All 19 of you have gotten angry with me, right? You want to share things you enjoy. How many of you show pictures of your kids unsolicited to others and say, look, and when they don't, you know, they don't respond in the appropriate way, which is melting and praising, and you say, okay, look at those eyes. Are you not seeing what I'm showing? This is, right? I do this all the time. I put it in every sermon. I talk about how awesome Harvey is and Joe are, and then they're, they're better than your kids. I'm even positive of that, right? And I shove it in your face because you must see how beautiful my little, I mean, they're just, the cheeks are perfect. How could they get any better, right? Any other shape would be off and horrible, right? You do that. I do that because you love to share what you love. It is a joy to share what you love. And C.S. Lewis even dials in on this very thing, this thing that all of us do all the time. He says this, I think... We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to suddenly, at the turn of a road upon some, uh, upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than they care for a tin can in a ditch, to hear a good joke and have no one to share it with. The expressing completes the enjoyment, the delight. So, if that's true, what Jesus is doing in inviting you to serve the glorious King of Kings is inviting you to joy, the greatest joy. He's inviting you to the greatest delight. See his loving heart. He doesn't just want soldiers to do his bidding. He wants brothers. He wants sisters. He wants friends who find their joy in him and their ultimate delight in his work. What he is calling you towards is joy, to see, to taste and see that the Lord is good. You will long for others to taste and see if you taste and see how good he is. One of my favorite uh, stories in the gospel is actually in the gospel of John is when uh, Jesus calls Philip. It's a real short story. And then Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, we found him. We found the Messiah. He's called me. We found the one we've been looking for. He's from Nazareth. And what Philip or Nathaniel responds with a very famous, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Doubting. And notice what Philip doesn't do. He doesn't say, well, that, you know, that was to fulfill a prophecy. There'd be no form of majesty. He doesn't explain. What does he say? Come and see. 
just come and see. Almost as if there will be no need to explain to you his origin when you see his face and when you hear his words. And if you keep reading, you see that's exactly what happened to Nathaniel. Just come and see. Come and see his beauty and his delight. So he's calling us to come and see that we might beckon others. Come and see the source of all joy and the one who will complete any longing you have ever had. There is no higher calling and there is no greater joy. What love he is in drawing us to him in this mission. So that's the nature of the calling. You join his mission because he's loving. Next, shift the spotlight one more time, or a third time. Sorry, even I think three, no, four this time. Uh, A third time to the response to the calling. Look at verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets. This is Andrew and Peter. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother with their father, Zebedee, in the boats, mending their nets. And he called them immediately, verse 22. They left their boat and their father and followed him. So he calls these two sets of brothers What's their response to the call? Immediately they leave their nets and follow. Immediately they leave their boat and their dad and they follow him. Immediately this word that's meant to be like this jolt. Uh, Joe, my one-year-old, who is beautiful. Have I told you how beautiful she is? Um, Blue eyes. I mean, my goodness. She just stares at you. Uh, So Joe is uh, fearless, uh, which is, she's just like her mom, fearless, so does a lot of things that cautious people like myself would not do because nothing but danger awaits. So not only is she fearless, she is also has little to no ability to barely walk, right? Uh, so that's a horrible combination, and she loves to climb things. So about 97,000 times a day, I will be sitting, meditating on the joys of the Lord, and I'll open my eyes, and Joe will be on top of our roof somehow, or our TV, I don't know, and she'll be smiling and balancing on one foot, and I will immediately get up, go dive her, catch her, and then she mutters the words again, and I think, okay, how, did, how does anybody survive with little kids, like years being taken off my life, right? That's kind of this idea here. You have this feeling of, who's going to park the boat? They're just jumping out of the boat immediately. I feel bad for Zebedee, they just, did they say bye to their dad? They just jump out of the boat. So what is Matthew getting at? That's purposeful. He doesn't waste words here. And again, every gospel is painting a, a specific portrait. And if you actually look at the other gospels at this account, him calling these four guys, you'll see different uh, perspectives, if you will. So John will actually color in a bit more detail that Andrew was actually John the Baptist's disciple and goes and tells Peter about Jesus beforehand so they kind of knew of who he is. Luke gives the background of this story, that there's uh, miracles that take place, and so it's kind of a big teaching moment. Matthew cuts all of that out, so we're not going to focus on that. I want you to focus on this one thing, their immediate response. Why is he doing that? Quite simply, again, remember the purpose behind it. He is showing us the king of kings who preaches the gospel of the kingdom. That is one of his primary purposes in writing this whole gospel. And so here he's showing us something we've already seen, we're seeing here, we're going to see again, which is when the king of glory calls you, you have two options of how you are to respond. Stay in the boat 
or leave everything and follow him. We've seen this before. We'll see it here. We'll see it again. Crown him or kill him. You can't just like him. Reject him and have nothing to do with him or leave everything to follow him. You have two options and only two options. Stay in the boat. Say, keep walking, weird rabbi on the shore, or leave your nets and go follow him. In fact, Matthew over and over and over again is going to show people who look for option three that doesn't exist. Look at Matthew 8, 19 to 22. A scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests and the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple came to him and said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. We see another place where someone says, can I go say bye to my family first? And Jesus says to him, if anyone puts their hand to the plow and looks over their shoulder, they're not worthy of the kingdom. We all know the story of the rich young ruler who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the law. And he says, I have. And Jesus says, you have, that's good. One thing you lack, sell everything and follow me. And he leaves sorrowful. Time and time and time and time again, people say, what about option three? And Jesus has to tell them, there is no option three. Stay in the boat or leave your nets. And look at me, where we live in America, particularly in the Bible Belt, particularly in the buckle of the Bible Belt, Dallas, Texas, we're obsessed with option three. We love option three. We're constantly presenting an option three, the prosperity gospel, right? Jesus will make you healthy, wealthy, prosperous, which notice is, Jesus, you get in the boat with us and make us catch a bunch of fish and do whatever we say, right? It's exactly backwards from the true gospel. Or what's probably more typical, I doubt anyone here loves or believes in the prosperity gospel, probably wouldn't be at this church, Uh, but something I think is closer to home with us is uh, a more subtle kind of, how do I just get saved, meaning not go to hell, and then I just, you know, go back to the American dream. Nice house and nice family and kids go to a good college and good career. We make sure all the security pillars are put in place. Then we will you know, follow him and go to church, or even maybe a more subtle layer, a a kind of subtle, what's the bare minimum I have to do? You hear this often with the question, does that mean I'm not saved? You hear a harsh sermon, that's the first question. Wait, does this mean I'm not saved? Which if you analyze that question means, what do you care about? You know, does it mean I've dishonored him? That's not what you're asking. Does it mean I don't know the living God? That's not what you're asking. You're asking, how do I make sure I'm good? And then I'll relax, because that's all I really care about, or even, even more subtle, does this church meet all my needs? Do I like the music? Do I click with the people? Is the pastor relatable? Notice all, all that me, me, I, I, I. That's all option three. Jesus, I'll get out of the boat. I love you. Love what you're doing, but I've got some things we need to talk about before. Like, I, I was told I was special as a kid and that I can be anything I wanted to be. I don't know if you're aware of that, but I've got big dreams, and so as long as those are fine, I'm game. I'll wear the badge, Jesus is my homeboy, all that stuff, all that ridiculous stuff you see in like a Mardell, right? Uh, We're obsessed with option three. I've got terms you need to agree to, Jesus, before I'll get out of the boat. And he would say to you the same thing he said to everyone that tries to present option three to him while he was here on the earth with us. There is no option three. 
I'm sorry. Crown me or kill me. Stay in the boat or get out of the boat and leave your nets. And I would encourage you, leave the nets. Let's not play this Bible Belt game. If you are, if you're still in the boat and pretending just because, you know, you're better than other people, you have good morals, you're conservative, you're certainly not voting Democrat and all that stuff, right? All the things that Christians should be, right? But your affections haven't changed. Jesus is fire insurance at best. The purpose of your life has not changed. The reason why you do what you do has not changed. It's not for him and for his glory. That hasn't changed. Let's stop playing that game, okay? You're deceiving one person, yourself. Harvey, my beautiful, have I told you how beautiful? Beautiful child. He is now, he's starting to play hide and seek. And Harvey is a really, 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 really bad hider. Here's what he does. He closes his eyes. <laughs> or he'll like get under a blanket, but just put his head under the blanket. Now, who is he hiding from? No one. No one is deceived except one person, that sweet, beautiful, blonde-haired two-year-old, right? When you do the American Christian thing where nothing changed about my life, nothing, purpose, nothing about my purpose or meaning or affections or who I live for or why I live has ever changed, it's still for me, but I'm a Christian because I prayed a prayer and I go to church and I'm more moral than the liberals, right? You've closed your eyes. Let me tell you who you have not deceived, the living God. Let's not play that game. Stay in the boat or get out. Just be honest. A honest atheist or an honest agnostic is better than a false Christian, okay? Are you in the boat or have you let go of the nets? And let me again tell you, he's the only one worthy of letting go of the nets for. He's the only one you should ever let go of the nets for now. I know that could be harsh. I want to encourage you. Some of you, most of you, uh, have let go of the nets, but you're human, and so you've fallen. And so you probably already are hearing the lies of the accuser saying, hey, that's you. You're either still in the boat or he called you, but you know, he didn't know you were going to be this bad or this much of a handful. And so he probably regrets it. And I would just say to you, remember the one who is calling you. Remember Paul's words. He calls you to display his perfect patience. Remember, he's not a savior that came to say, I saved the righteous. He says, the righteous need no doctor. I came to seek and save the lost. And let me encourage you with a very real example. Every disciple that he calls, especially these four men here, are going to desert him in his greatest hour of need. One of them is going to deny him altogether. And what does he do? Does he say after the resurrection, oh, ye of little faith, goodbye, I'm going to go find some better ones who aren't going to desert me when I'm arrested and being beaten and need my friends around me. No, what does he do? He goes to them, comforts them, turns their eyes away from their sin and says, go, feed my sheep, fish, make disciples of all nations. He brings them right back to this moment. Don't forget who is calling you, his unbelievable mercy and grace. So that's actually my last spotlight. Don't forget who is the one calling. So who does he call? The lowly, the weak, to shame the strong, to exalt his glory. What's the nature of the calling? We get to, for our ultimate joy, 
join his mission? What is the response to the call? Stay in the boat or get out? And those are your only two. And then lastly, who is the one that's actually doing the calling? And within this last point, I want to look at three things. I know it's complicated. Four, then three again. Uh, Who is calling? I want to show how Jesus is the caller, he's the transformer, and he's the treasure. Look at verse 18. While walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. Don't miss the simple, life-changing fact that he called you, not the other way around. He called you, not the other way around. In his day, by the way, this would have been totally countercultural. In Judaism, the, the disciples go to a rabbi and they say, can I follow you? And then the rabbi will say, okay, how many birds are there in Leviticus? Literally, because they're supposed to have the Old Testament memorized and rabbis want to make sure their students are the best of the best because your students are going to reflect your reputation. Not with this rabbi. This rabbi calls the disciples, not the other way around He is the founder of your faith. He is the one that began a good work in you. The very fact that you follow him is evidence that he's called you. He even says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. He makes the first move. There can be nothing more humbling. Again, Paul, he displays his perfect patience so that no one could ever praise me. They praise him. There's nothing we did in coming to him. We come because he called, and there could, be, there could be nothing that makes him more glorious. You were not, and I was not, neutral, searching around for a God that might save us. We were rebels running away, and Jesus goes after us. If you think that you are the reason you are a Christian Your joy and your peace will always be dependent on your performance. When you're faithful, you'll get prideful, and when you're faithless, you will crumble because it's up to you in your mind. But if you see reality, what is true, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive, that this rabbi says, I call my sheep, they know my voice, and they come to me. He says, I will not lose any that are mine. No one can snatch them from my hand. If you see reality, then your peace and your joy will be dependent on him, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't lose sight that Peter, James, John, and Andrew are fishing, unaware of who of what Jesus is doing, walk along the shore, he goes after them, and he comes after you. He is the one who calls you. If you ever want, if you want to banish the thought forever of the, uh, does he really see me? Does he really care about me? Never lose sight of this. He never loses sight of you. He calls you, calls you by name. He never loses sight of you. You lose sight of him. If you're a believer, it's because he's called your name. He's the caller Next, he's the transformer. Verse 19, he said to them, follow me. Don't miss this part. I will make you fishers of men. 
It's not like one of those, you know, nerd makeover shows where they take a nerd and they take his glasses off and shave and give him a haircut and it's like, whoa, a pretty person was under there, right? It's not like, oh, there's so much raw potential in these fishermen because, you know, to pull nets, you have to be strong and they're going to have to be strong-willed to advance the kingdom. That's not what's happening here. Jesus says, come to me, lowly, weak, and I will transform you. Your heart's made of stone. That's okay. I'll take it out, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, a living heart. You're covered in sin. It's okay. I will cleanse you by my own blood. I will wash you and make you whiter than snow. Notice it's not sanctification or justification is up to him. Sanctification is up to us. He never takes his hand off the wheel and lets us drive again. He's the one that will transform you. Rest in that. Charles Spurgeon, speaking on this very thing, says this, when Christ calls by his grace, we are not only to remember what we are, but, what, uh, but we ought to also think of what he can make us. It is, follow me and I will make you. We should repent of what we have been, but rejoice in what we may be. It is not, follow me because of what you are already. It is not follow me because you will make something of yourself, but follow me because of what I will make you. It did not seem a likely thing that humble fishermen would develop into apostles, that men so handy with the net would be much at home in preaching sermons and instructing converts. No one would have said, or one would have said, how can these things be? You cannot make founders of churches out of peasants of Galilee, that is exactly what Christ did. When we are brought low in the sight of God by a sense of our own unworthiness, we may feel encouraged to follow Jesus because of what he can make us. He will make you fishers of men. He will transform you. You are in his hand, and no one can snatch you out. He's the caller. He's the transformer. Lastly, he is the treasure. You are not getting out of the boat because Jesus has a better gig he wants to give you. You get out of the boat not to get a better gig, but to get him. You get out of the boat to get the one who is calling you out of the boat. It is the easiest trade in the world to lay down your nets for the God of all joy. And if you knew who it was that was calling you, you would let him finish his sentence before you would be on the shore. Because of who he is, when you leave everything and you get him, you actually get everything. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is great. It's different than every other kingdom because the one calling you is its king. When you have him, you have the greatest treasure. You have the one that every possible longing points to. C.S. Lewis uh, was an atheist uh, long before he was a Christian. 
And he would describe his, his period as, a, as an atheist as this, this period of longing. He would read a book and he would be stabbed. He described it as a stabbing of longing. He said, unattainable ecstasy hovered just above the grasp of my consciousness. And then when he found Jesus, when he became a Christian, when Tolkien witnessed to him and he believes in God and then later believes in Jesus Christ, he said he found the one who all, whom all the longing pointed to. He says this, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good things of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols and break the hearts of the worshipers, for they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and the news from a country we have never visited. And when he became a Christian, he said, I found the flower, I've heard the tune, and I found the country. I found the one that all the longing points to. I found the one where all the beauty comes from. When you have him, you have everything. You have your greatest treasure, the one where all the beauty comes from. It is a common thought that Christianity means leaving the fun stuff in the world that would actually bring us happiness and doing a bunch of boring religious stuff, but we don't go to hell. And so I guess it's worth it. Oh, how backwards that is. The reality of Christianity is you get Jesus Christ, the greatest treasure, which instantly opens your eyes to see the so-called pleasures of the world are actually poison. It's not a steak. It's like chewing sand. He is the one that all the beauty points to. Every longing of your heart is found in him. So as we begin to wrap up, leave everything, lose everything, and get him, because when you get him, you get everything. You lose nothing in letting go of your nets. Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me end with a quote from Robert Murray McShane, of course. Uh, I quote him, by the way, often because I think he gets this point exactly right. I, I love history. I love the, the men and women of history who have died and preserved the faith, and we have their writings. And so I sit with Augustine reading his confessions because he, he shows me a gigantic, gracious God, and he shows me the evils of sin. And I sit with David Brainerd because he teaches me to pray. And when I met McShane, he, I just feel like he's taken me by the hand and led me to this Savior and showed what a treasure he is. So I want you to see what a treasure he is. That's why I quote him basically every week. So here he is. Precious friend, an unchangeable priest is Christ, sweeter to you than honey and the honeycomb. How great is the goodness he has laid up for them that fear him, just as the miser lays up money that he may feast his eyes upon it. So Christ has laid up unsearchable riches that he may supply all our need out of them. Unfathomable oceans of grace 
are in Christ for you, dive and dive again, and you will never come to the bottom of these depths. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hid in the deep recesses of the ocean caves, but their unsearchable riches in Christ seek after them. Or to use the language of this text, leave your nets for them. Leave your nets for him. He calls the lowly to display his grace and his loving heart and his glory. He brings you into his mission, inviting you to delight in him as you serve him. He transforms you to be his people. It's not up to you. It's up to him. He's the founder and the perfecter of your faith. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to finish it. He doesn't call and say, it's up to you now. He says, I call and I will finish the work that I started. And he gives you the ultimate treasure, which is himself. He's called your name. So leave everything to follow him. Leave your nets. When you gain him, you gain everything. You gain the one all the beauty points to. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you. There's, there's little any man can do to his own heart or little I can do other than motivate. Apart from you, this is a useless motivational speech, but you are the God who changes hearts. You, do, you are the one who takes away a heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. You're the one who uproots sin and bears the fruit of the Spirit. You're the one who opens the eyes of our hearts that we might behold the glorious inheritance that we have in your Son. You're the one who brings us into your family and adopts us as your children, not just filling out the paperwork as some sort of new state, but that we might fellowship with you as our Father, that we might cry out, Abba, Father. All of that is done by your supernatural hand. And so I pray that you would do it. I pray that as we take communion and I pray as we sing afterwards that your spirit would just be doing surgery on our hearts and that our eyes would fly open and we might, as Paul prays, knows, know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that we might live and rest, that the anxiety of the world might be mocked by us as coming nowhere near our peace that surpasses all understanding that the stresses of this world would not touch our joy because we live and move and have our being in you. So I pray that in your son's glorious name. Amen.